So first of all, the unity of God. Jump right in. Deuteronomy says it this way. He showed you these things so you would know that the Lord is God and there is no other. Do you believe that this morning? That the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, is God and there is no other God in the universe. Or is the way that he said it in Isaiah. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord of heaven's armies. I am the first and the last. There is no other God. There is no God that came before God. There is no God that will come after God. And there is no God in between. This is an exclusive operation. One chapter later, he says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. God does not mince words here in the scriptures, does he? He says, I am God. I alone am God. Now, this doctrine, this belief about God being the only God, it it seems so basic that we wouldn't even bother to think about it, even to question it. If you've, especially if you've grown up in church, like you've known since you were in Sunday school, shoving Cheerios up your nose, that yes, there is one God. We don't believe in in, in multiple gods, uh, but in the Christian faith. And yet the implications of this are monumental. When I came back up to Alaska after college in 2009, I took a job as a coach at Cook Inlet. It's the school I went to. It's my alma mater. Here we are. This is the first year um, that I was back, region champs. Uh-huh. And um, the, you can see my brother over there looking dapper in the glasses and ties. And then here over the right is Jacob and I. Okay, most of you know Jacob. Um, he's not here today. He's on the slope, but he's with us in spirit. Jacob and I, we had, I had one year I was going to be raising support uh, to go overseas as a missionary. Uh, but I had, I had one year here in, in Soldatna. The position as head coach had opened up, so I was going to look at taking it. Well, Jacob and I were talking about it, and we both wanted to coach together. We had both gone to school there. And, and so we were talking about it, and we were like, well, who should be the head coach? And we said, well, you know what we'll do? We'll both be head coach. That's a good idea. <laughs> it was not a good idea. You know how you have one head on your body, and, like, that's enough? Like, no one's ever like, man, if only I had a second head, everything would be wonderful. Hey, Michael. Good to see you. Um, the, in the same way, a basketball team is, is meant to have one head coach. And we quickly found that it made things infinitely more difficult. Um, you know, uh, who is the parent going to contact? In, 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 the, in the heat of a game, who's the one calling the timeout? You know, you bring people over, who's going to talk? When you're yelling at the re- when you're respectfully disagreeing with the referee, who's the one that's going to... St- only one person can stand up and talk, right? And so we quickly realized this thing, it's not intended to have two heads to it, just like our bodies and just like this universe. There is to be one God, and that position's already been filled. And, and some of the implications of this, of there being one God and one God only, are as follows. First of all, Without it, without there being one God, in other words, if there were two or more gods, prophecy would be impossible. And let me explain, A, what that means, and B, why that's important. If there were truly more than one God, neither God could foretell the future because they wouldn't know what the other God was going to do. And, and, and kind of flesh that out. How terrifying would it be if we didn't know how all of this ended? Like, imagine your faith without the book of Revelation. 
without knowing that at the end, Jesus has taken names, that he throws Satan in the lake of fire, that that those who don't believe in him, who rebel, go with Satan, that those who do believe, he prepares this banquet, and we live with him forever, and that he rules and reigns for all of eternity. And we just sort of, as Christians, we just sort of assume, we know, we bank on that prophecy and revelation that that's how it's all going to end. But imagine that being taken away. And we don't know how it's all going to end. That that's God's plan, but this God over here has got other plans. Who's going to win out? And then all of a sudden, the foundation of our faith completely crumbles. But there's more than one God. Without the unity of God, science is impossible. A universe requires a unity of God. If there is a duality of nature, the order that you and I just take for granted can no longer be banked on. What if this one God is into gravity, but the other one isn't, and they're fighting over this lever, and in the meantime, we're up and we're down? It would create this universe of chaos if there wasn't one God that had created it and was maintaining it. And finally, and I think in a lot of ways the most practical, the first commandment, when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, the first commandment says, I am the Lord, there is no other. You shall not have any other gods than me. And he mandated us to to have no other God than him because so often we attempt to fashion other things into gods, namely ourselves. Recently I've been reading um, the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Remember I told you, if you're a good Christian, you like C.S. Lewis. Um, That he wrote this letter. The Screwtape Letters is this demon writing to an apprentice demon, showing him how to effectively tempt and pull away a human being from God. And as he's writing this this letter to this, this younger demon, he says the following... He says, you must zealously guard in his mind, in the human's mind, the the curious assumption, my time is my own. My time is my own. Any of us here this morning fall into that trap at times? This is my time. Think of it this way. He says, let him have the feeling that he starts each day as the lawful possessor of 24 hours. And how easy it is to wake up in the morning and say, this is my agenda. This is my schedule. This is how my day is going to go. And so you pack your lunch, you go to work, you come home from work. Now it's my time to sit on my couch, prop up my feet, watch my TV shows, read my book, play with my family. And all of a sudden there's a phone call. And there's a knock at the door. Or there's a last night, my nephew burns his arm, we're all at the ER. None of us planned that. Certainly he didn't. And these distractions come in and we get angry. We get irritated. This isn't how my day was supposed to go. But the lie that we've bought into is that it was my day to begin with. You see, even, even the demon understands. He says, and all the time, the joke is that the word mine, in its fully possessive sense, cannot be uttered by a human being about anything. Here's the truth. We don't own anything. We don't own our time. We don't own our resources. We don't own our own body. The Bible tells us we have been bought by, with a price, the blood of Christ. We belong to him. Everything in this universe, even our own souls, they are not our own. We are not God. 
Imagine the radical shift in thinking if you woke up every morning saying, God, what would you have me to do with your day? This is the day the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice in the plans that he has for me. And now all of a sudden, those interruptions that come, we no longer see them as irritating. We see them as the will of God. We we see them as from his hand, what, what God has given us today. There is one God. There is no other. It's not you or I. Number two, we want to talk about the the tri-unity of God. There is one God, but within this one God, there are three persons. Webster says it like this, the Trinity, it's the union of three divine figures, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, in one Godhead. Three persons in one. The Latin word trinus, it it emphasizes this aspect of three. Although I like, you know, Pastor Larry, a lot of these notes came from him. He's preached this series before. And and he used this term triunity. And I I am with him in favoring this because it does emphasize three, but ultimately that they are one. There, There are three persons in the Godhead, but there is one God. We just said... I am the Lord, there is no other. The Trinity is not saying, well, there's actually three gods, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's saying there are three different persons, and yet they are all one God. It's a mystery that our little human brains are just never going to comprehend, but we can peek the door open and we can look inside. This truth is fundamental to our faith as believers, meaning that it's, 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 this is a non-negotiable in our faith. It's essential to the gospel, and here's why. If there is no Trinity, there is no Savior. If there is no Trinity, there is no Savior, and our gospel crumbles like a house of cards. And I'll explain why that is in a moment. This Trinity, though, is revealed to us in Scripture. This is not a man-made idea. Now, you are not going to find a verse that uses the word Trinity. So you can stop looking, okay? And pay attention to me. There is no verse that says God is three in one. It's called the Trinity, but we see it revealed, as many of our doctrines in the Bible, we see it fleshed out. And like many, there's this idea we talked about when we were talking about God's self-revelation. It's progressive revelation, meaning he reveals, he shows us shadows of something, and then as we march through the scripture and through time, it becomes clearer and clearer as to what God, who God is, and what he wants us to know. So you look in the Old Testament, there are implications, there are shadows of the Trinity. One is right out of the gate in Genesis 1. If you know this verse, he says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. God is not a schizophrenic. Look at, notice he doesn't say, let me make mankind in my image, In my likeness, he says, let us make mankind in our image. The noun here, the pronoun he uses is plural in nature. Now, there are many different, there there are a lot of disagreements on what this verse is saying, why there could be plurality, not getting into that this morning. But what we do see, what's so interesting is the pronoun is plural, not to get too, you know, we're not in school here, but the, the pronoun is plural and yet the verb is singular. So he says, let us make. It would be like in English if we said, you know, we makes dinner tonight. 
the, it's not, there's not an agreement. It's not a, a subject-verb uh, agreement, right? You sound like Smeagol from Lord of the Rings, right? We likes the precious. I cannot do a Smeagol impression. I'm not even going to try. So it, it doesn't agree, but the, the whole point is that there's this, this implication, this, this God hinting at, and we know from, we have further revelation. What does it say in Hebrews? That all things were created by and through Jesus, that Jesus was here at the beginning with God the Father when these things were being created. And, and so we believe that this is a, a hint at the, the idea that God is three in person. And then a little bit more clear in Psalm 110, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is a prophecy indicating Jesus to come, that God is going to put the enemies under Jesus' feet. In fact, Jesus references this psalm several times, as do they in Acts, to prove his deity and his lordship. See, God's name is given to more than one person in this text. The Lord said to my Lord. God is speaking to God, indicating, hinting at the deity of Christ. But then we see this even more fully realized in our New Testament. In fact, all three of the persons of the Godhead are named as God in Scripture. God the Father, which would be the most obvious one, John 6, for God the Father. That's pretty straightforward. The Son is also called God, Hebrews 1.8. But about the Son, about Jesus, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. He's talking about Jesus, and he calls him God. In the beginning, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Holy Spirit is also called God. You remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? They, die, they lie, and they die. Something you can teach your children. Um, Acts 5, he says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. You have lied not just to human beings, but to God. Implying that the Holy Spirit is, in fact, God, whom you've lied to. And we see this over and over in the, whole, in the New Testament. This is revealed that each of them is God. Now, when we say this, we want to distinguish something here. The, the three persons of the Godhead are distinct, and yet they're equal. They're, they're distinct, yet they're equal. And so you look at this little triangle here, and what this thing is showing us is that the Father is not the Son. They are two distinct persons. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. They are distinct in their personhood, and yet each of them is God. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. Um, we see this distinction pretty clearly in, in John 15. It shows all three parts of the Godhead working. It says, when the advocate, who he's referring to the Holy Spirit, comes, whom I, Jesus, will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. Basically, all we need to take away from this verse is he's showing that God is sending the Spirit, and, 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 the, and he's going to testify about the Son. It's showing us all three parts in distinction, or maybe better fleshed out. You remember when Jesus got baptized. When Jesus comes back out of the water, God sends the Spirit to descend on Jesus. We see all three persons of the Godhead in action. So they are distinct from each other. This is not just different names for God, different aspects of God's personality. These are three different persons, and yet they are equal. John 10, I and the Father are one. They are inseparable. They are not three separate gods. They are three separate persons as one God. And there are many other references we won't jump into 
equating the rest of the Trinity. So, so the point here, the distinctions that we're talking about, is that the distinctions are made in what they do, not in who they are. God the Father is not more God than Jesus. Jesus is not more God than the Spirit. Don't we kind of rank them in our own minds? Like, the, you know, Jesus is his Son and the Holy Spirit. We don't really even understand him, you know. But in actuality, each of them is fully 100% God. The distinction is not in who they are, their value as God. Their distinction is in what they do. Let me explain. It's a picture of me and my two beautiful siblings, taken about a month ago at Hidden Lake. Uh, we were hiking there. This is pre-fires. And um, imagine that one day the, the, the three of us decide to start a corporation together. We're going to go do the office Frankino style, right? Finally, what the world has been waiting for. And we decide, now all three of us are siblings, right? Like I am the eldest, and, and then they come after me. Um, but In value, we are each siblings, okay? Our parents tell us that they don't love one of us more than the other. Um, We are equal in in their minds in value. We are equal as as siblings. And yet we're going to start this corporation and we're going to have different roles, okay? I, of course, will be the general manager. That goes without saying. Okay, then Janelle, she's pretty competent. She can be the sales manager. And that leaves us with the runt, okay? He can do the heavy lifting, shipping, and receiving, all right? (laughs) He left <laughs> because I told him to. Um, so in this corporation, here's what you see. The sales manager reports to the general manager and does his bidding. The, the shipping and receiving reports to both the sales and to the general manager. So there is this order. There is this hierarchy within our function, Right? Equal siblings, and yet in role, we have different functions. And there is a hierarchy. They report to me, right? In the same way, in the Trinity, Jesus, what did he say when he was kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane? Take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus submitted to the Father. The Spirit submits to both Jesus and the Father. There are distinctions in role, and in their function, God is on top. Jesus uh, reports to him, and the Spirit reports to both. This is not speaking to value. This is speaking to function. We see this. God fleshes this out for us all the time in creation. Look at marriage. The husband's the head of the home. The wife submits to the husband. That doesn't mean she's a lesser person than the husband. This is talking about role, not value. What about the body of Christ? We have different roles. There are leaders in the body, and we are all the body. Christ as our head, we submit to him. Not talking about value, we're talking about function. God is a God of order, and in this, he has embodied this order in himself, the Trinity. Different in function, not in value. And here's me going in for a kiss on Jeremy. He pretended to not like it. Outtakes. Um, So what are the implications of this trinity? What What does this matter for us? First of all, without the plurality of persons, without there being three persons in one, it's hard to see how we could have a God of eternal love if he was in a vacuum. Put it this way, love demands an object. You can't just kind of have this feeling of love. You love something. You love someone. 
So how could God, in eternity past, before there was anything to love, before there was anything created at all, how could he be a God of, of love? We, we said a couple weeks ago that anything God is, he is infinitely and eternally. So how could God be a God of love if there's nothing to love? John 17, Jesus said this, Father, you loved me even before the world began. Before you and I ever existed, God, agape, perfectly loved the Son. God perfectly loved the Spirit. The Spirit and, and the Son perfectly loved the Father and each other. Because of the three persons, there could be love. And because we're made in his image, we can love. And he loves us. Secondly, without the Trinity, it's difficult to see how we could have a genuinely personal God. If God is a God of relationship, again, you need something to relate to. If you're going to have a personality, to be funny, someone has to laugh at your jokes. To be kind, someone needs to receive your charity. And so God, in eternity past, had relationship with himself, and therefore, when we're created in his image, we, like God, can be of relationship, and we can have a personality just like he does. And then finally, without the Trinity, there could be no salvation from sin in the Christian sense. I told you that without the Trinity, there can be no gospel, and this is why. For us to be saved from our sins, for the payment of the penalty of our sins to be effective, there was only one way, two ways for this to happen. You and I could pay for it forever. We are finite beings. It was an eternal sin. It would be paid for for eternity. So that's door number one. Door number two is Jesus. And Jesus, in order to take the punishment for our sin, had to be, must be, 100% God and 100% man. We've talked about this before, that if he's not fully man, he couldn't have died. Remember, death is, the wages of sin is death. Death is the necessary payment for sin. So Jesus had to be mortal so he could die, but he also had to be God because it had to be an eternal payment. Either we paid for it for eternity or an eternal being paid for it for one time. And not only did it have to be an eternal being, it had to be a perfect being to be able to satisfy God's demands of holiness. And therefore, Jesus, as God and man, is the only acceptable offering in our place for sin. Hallelujah. And he came and he died for us. And it's only because Jesus is God, only because the Trinity exists, that we have any legs to stand on in our gospel. Final thing we want to look at this morning is the Christ-likeness of God. We said that there is one God, there are three persons in that God. The final thing we want to look at is not just that Jesus is God, but Jesus is exactly like God. I want to share with you a story um, by a man named Max Dupree. He says this, Esther, my wife, and I have a little granddaughter named Zoe, which is the Greek word for life. She was born prematurely and weighed one pound, seven ounces so small that my wedding ring could slide up her arm to her shoulder. The neonatologist who first examined her told us that she had a 5 to 10% chance of living for three days. When Esther and I scrubbed up for our first visit and saw Zoe in her isolate 
at the neonatal intensive care unit. She had two IVs in her navel, one in her foot, a monitor on each side of her chest, and a respirator tube and a feeding tube in her mouth. To complicate matters, Zoe's biological father had jumped ship the month before Zoe was born. Realizing this, a wise and caring nurse named Ruth gave me my instructions. For several months, for the next several months, at least, you're the surrogate father. I want you to come to the hospital every day to visit Zoe. And when you come, I want you to rub her body and her legs and arms with the tip of your finger. While you're caressing her, you should tell her over and over how much you love her. Because she has to be able to connect your voice to your touch. She has to be able to connect your voice to your touch. In this series, remember, we're answering the question, what is God like? And God knew, in in his infinite wisdom, that to know him, to know him in relationship, that we needed both his voice and his touch to tell us over and over and over how much he loves us. You see, without God's voice and touch, we, like baby Zoe, have no chance of surviving in this world. No, No chance of a life, no chance of thriving outside of God's voice and his touch. And we know that we, we hear the voice of God through his word, through creation. We talked about this in this series. But how do we feel God's touch? How, how do you feel the touch of God? John 1.18 says this. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Jesus is God with skin on. Jesus is a God you can touch. Colossians 2.9 says, For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. Everything about God that we need to know is, is put and placed into the person of Jesus. And Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. So God is kind of this abstract concept in spirit that we can read about. We can see some of his attributes in creation. But what does this look like? How do I relate to this as a human being? And so he wrapped himself up in swaddling clothes and came to this earth to embody his glory and his character in the person of Jesus. So what is God like? Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is our God. A God who has a compassionate heart for the downcast and the outcast. A God who heals the sick. A God who wraps his arms around the orphan and the widow 
the broken and the dirty. God is the God who said, and Jesus, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. This is our God, a God who longs to carry the burdens that you and I so desperately attempt to carry on our own, fully realized when Jesus hung on the cross, carrying the weight of the sins of the world on his shoulders. But Jesus is not just the Jesus of the Precious Moments Bible carrying the little lamb. Jesus is also the God that said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs, you blind fools. Jesus also came with a whip, turning over tables, taking names when they needed to be taken. Jesus is a Jesus, he's a God that would give grace to the needy, but he would give law to the proud. Jesus is not afraid to deal with sin in severe terms. But he's also a Jesus that when the Pharisees wanted to chuck rocks at an adulterous woman, he said, all right, the sinless one can throw the first rock. And they all left, right? And she came at his feet and she fell before him and he said, dear woman, your sins are forgiven. Now get up and sin no more. Jesus shows us the God who loves us enough to accept us exactly where we are but loves us too much to leave us there. This is our God. He's the God that stooped low and washed the grime and the dirt and the germs from the feet of the very men who within hours would deny him, betray him, and walk away with those very feet. The God of the universe became the servant of all. This is our God. And one day, he's coming back. In a, not in swaddling clothes this time, in a robe so bright that we can't even look at it or we'll fall over dead with a sword and a horse and he will trample his enemies and he will come and rescue his bride and have a big old banquet with us and we will be victorious and rule and reign with him forever. This is our God. Not only can you see God with skin on in Christ, you can feel God with skin on in his body, the body of Christ, us, the church, the church, excuse me. You remember the story, I've heard it many times, the guy who, there's a flood coming, and it's going to wipe him and his house out, and he says, God, save me, and the car comes driving by and says, get in, we'll get out of here. He says, no, 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 God's going to save me. So then the flood starts coming, he has to go up to the second story, and he says, God, save me, and the boat comes by, jump in, we'll get out of here. And he says, no, 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 God will save me, right? Then the waters keep coming, and he's on the rooftop, okay, the water's getting around his ankles, and the helicopter comes by, and he says, jump in this is your last chance he says no no god's gonna save me and the water comes and takes him away and he drowns and he dies and he stands before god in heaven he says god why didn't you save me he says dude i sent you a car and a boat and a helicopter right see the reality is so many times we kind of have this idea of god like angels in the outfield where he's just gonna like pick us up and move us around and like do what we want him to do through this kind of ethereal experience when so many times God meets our need through his body, the people of Christ. And when we need, when the moment of despair, when we need his compassion, he sends a friend or a family member to come and throw their arms around us and cry with us. 
And when we need counsel, he sends an older, wiser person that we know and trust to give us counsel. God meets our needs in very practical ways. We are his hands and his feet. He sent us into the mission field to preach the gospel to every creature. This is his vehicle for global evangelism. We are in reality the body of Christ, the tangible expression of God made flesh. So what are the implications of the Christ-likeness of God? First of all, it makes God concrete and real. God is not just this kind of abstract spirit that we read about only. We get to see in the Gospels what Jesus looks like, what God looks like as he interacts with people. Secondly, it guards us from partial and lopsided notions of God. It's easy for us to kind of have hobby horse attributes of God. Like, I love the love of God. Well, I really like the holiness of God or the wrath of God, the faithfulness of God. Jesus is this whole person that you just kind of have to deal with. Like, you can't, you can't put him in a box. And, and Jesus does some crazy stuff. He says some crazy stuff. And he has the lamb and the whips. You can't put Jesus into a box. And so it safeguards us from fashioning a God of our own imagination. And finally, Jesus, the Christ-likeness of God, guards us. It, it, it gives us, I should say, assurance that we really know God. And that is what believers, is what our hearts should hunger for above all, is to know him and to worship him as God. First John says this is how it works. And we know that the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God, and he is eternal life. So to answer the question we've been, answer, we've been asking this whole series, what is God like and how can we know him? If someone came to you and said, do you know God? Do you have a real relationship with God? The, the best answer that we can give them, if we believe it, is to say, yes, I know Jesus. Do you know God? Yes, I know Jesus. And I, and I challenge you this morning, do you know him? Not just do you know facts about him, but do you know him? Do we fall on Jesus as our source of everything, our only hope, our only righteousness before God? Do we follow Jesus? Do we obey him? Do we go where he tells us to go and say what he tells us to say? Is he our Lord? And are we beginning to look like Jesus? Because remember, that's the purpose. God's purpose for us is not happiness, it's holiness. And he has purpose to make us as his disciples to look like Jesus. Where are we in that process? Do you know him? Father, we thank you that there is one God and there is no other. We confess that oftentimes, I, I know I confess that I so often try to make myself that God, that I put myself on your throne, that I believe the lie that this is my time, my day, my schedule, my body, my resources. Father, I pray that we'd repent of that and, and let you be God, let you be the only true God, that we would not bow, bend our heart, bend our knees, bow our hearts to another. And God, we, we pray that we would rejoice in the fullness of your godness in the trinity that, that within you is love is relationship and therefore you've created us for love and and for relationship and father finally we thank you that we can see you fully expressed your full glory 
your full character, your, your full heart for us as seen in the person of Jesus. Father, may our one ambition in life be to make much of him, to fall on him, to follow him, and to look like Jesus. He alone is worthy of our time, our attention, our energy. Father, remove those distractions, remove the sin that so easily entangles us and hinders our progress, and may we run this race well. Thank you that this is who you are. And as we peek open the door and get to catch a glimpse of your splendor and glory, may we fall in awe of who you are, falling more in love with you and worshiping you for the God that you are, not the God that we fashion in our own minds. You are the Lord. There is no other. And it's in your son's name that we come and worship this morning. Amen.